Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting November 1st. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, a couple of controversial subjects, electroshock therapy and stem cell research. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Scientific American editor Christine Suarez attended a stem cell symposium last week, and we'll hear from her later. First up, though, electroshock. A few weeks back, I went to a session at the Massachusetts General Hospital featuring Kitty Dukakis and Larry Ty, the co-authors of a new book called simply Shock, as well as Dr. Charles Welch, the head of the hospital's ECT program. Dukakis is the wife of former governor and presidential candidate Mike Dukakis, and she says electroshock, more technically called electroconvulsive therapy, saved her life. Larry Ty is a veteran journalist, and I spoke to him for a few minutes after the formal presentation. Larry, good to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Tell me about the things that surprised you as you were doing the research for this book. There were several things that surprised me. One is I thought as a longtime medical reporter that I understood a lot of the trends in psychiatry and in medicine, and I had no idea that ECT, that electric shock treatment, A, was still around, and B, was as widely used as it is today. There were as many as 100,000 people getting it each year in America, more than a million worldwide, and yet most of the public assumes this treatment went out with a cuckoo's nest. How much uh, damage did that movie do to the the potential for people being treated with, with this modality? I think it did lasting damage. The unfortunate thing is that it did its damage with an inaccurate portrayal of ECT at the time that the that Ken Kesey wrote his book, One Flow Over the Cuckoo's Nest. At that time, ECT was being done with anesthesia, with muscle relaxant, and with oxygen, and it did not look like the torturous treatment that he described. ECT does have risks. People ought to know about those, but they shouldn't think it looks like the cuckoo's nest because it doesn't. Some of the uh, some of the risks are the risks. The main risk there are two kinds of risk. One is a medical risk, and that is a risk that it is a medical procedure and you need anesthesia. And the risk medically is mainly the risk of the anesthesia itself. The risk in terms of side effects of the treatment are mainly memory loss. For most people, their short-term memory loss surrounding the period of treatment. For some people, they're longer lasting and going back to a deeper period of memories. And for some people, they're devastating. For most people that I talked to, and I interviewed more than 100 people who had had the treatment, they feel the risks, meaning this memory loss, is worth the benefit, meaning keeping them alive and digging them out of this deep hole of depression. Any other things that uh, jumped out at you as, as being unexpected while you were doing the research? Yes. One thing that was quite surprising to me is ECT's effectiveness. That generally for antidepressants, if you're talking about them individually or as a cocktail, we talk about a 60 or more percent effectiveness rate. 60% of the people will positively experience the antidepressants in terms of reducing their depression. With ECT, the average is about a 75% effectiveness rate, which means that ECT is about the most effective treatment when it's been weighed in scientific studies against the alternatives about the most effective treatment that's out there. So it sounds like this is a treatment that has been stigmatized out of use. Yes. In addition to people who are having mental illness facing a stigma because of their mental illness, ECT is what Kitty Dukakis and I call a whispered treatment, that there's a double stigma. One is the stigma of the illness. The other is the stigma associated with the treatment. And I'm not saying ECT is right for everybody. I'm not saying that lots of people won't have side effects with it. I am saying that one of those side effects should not be the stigma of having had a treatment. You uh, you mentioned in your prepared remarks earlier an, an interesting uh 
generation gap in the description. Uh, it's it's not clear what the mechanism of action is for ECT, but you talked about how various people of different ages describe what it seems to do. Yes, scientists have lots of wonderfully technical ways of describing what it's doing. Some people say it sort of mimics an effect of these SSRI antidepressants. Others say it might have actually an anticonvulsant effect, and that's where the benefits come from. The descriptions I prefer are the metaphors that people who have had ECT themselves use. For people under 50, the active metaphor is it's like rebooting your computer. You're not sure why the rebooting produces magical effects, but very often it does. For people over 50, they prefer, prefer the metaphor of going by and kicking a TV set that has a fuzzy screen, and sometimes the screen goes right. And again, what they're expressing is that they're not, they don't really care the mechanism by which it works. They care the fact that it has worked for them. And by that analogy, the brain is a PC and not a Mac. Uh, absolutely. And by that analogy, the, bla the brain is really still too much of a black box. We're not sure why antidepressants that work, why they work, and we're not sure why ECT works. Larry, thank you very much. Thank you. I also had a chance to talk to Dr. Welch, who runs Mass General's ECT program. Dr. Welch, thanks very much for talking to me today. My pleasure. Tell me about ECT in terms of our, our lack of a, a real understanding and how it works. Although the mechanism of action of ECT is not known, uh, there are some interesting clues to this question. We know, for instance, that the seizure is the effective component of the treatment. A grand mal seizure is an extraordinary event. Uh, it's sort of like if every light bulb in New York City were flashing on and off in exact synchrony three times per second. For some reason, this event resets brain chemistry uh, in ways that we don't understand. It looks as though the things that are getting reset are the precisely regulated chemical pathways that, that uh, modulate thought and affect in the brain. We think that the seizure in some way causes a reset of these very precisely regulated chemical pathways. And which ones? Well, that's anybody's guess. My own favorite is is that we are resetting ion channels. The sodium channel and the chloride channel are really where it's at in terms of generating and regulating neurological impulses in the brain. Both of these channels have a number of receptors on them. My hunch, and this may be utter utterly too simplistic, but my favorite hunch is that by forcing the brain to shut off a seizure, we force the brain to mobilize stabilizing chemical pathways, such as GABA, gamma aminobutyric acid, which then strike the chloride channel and force chloride into the cell, thereby increasing the electrical gradient across the cell membrane. The higher the gradient, the more stable that membrane is. Viewed this way, if, if this hypothesis were correct, it would mean that depression is basically an inability to maintain electrical stability in the brain, presumably uh, mainly because of an inherited vulnerability, an inherited uh, weakness in the uh, ability to maintain these electrochemical gradients on the cell membrane. You want to talk for a moment about the, the challenges of doing research in a field like this where you have both ethical considerations and funding issues? Uh... One of the problems with funding in ECT is that 
it is mainly government funded and there is no private entity that has any financial incentive to fund this research, unlike antidepressant drugs where there is invariably uh, at least one pharmaceutical company that has a financial incentive to fund research. So ECT research is underfunded in this country. Uh, a lot of the best research is, is coming out of institutions that have their own funding, such as the New York State Psychiatric Institute, which has independent funding, or the Medical Research Council in Britain, which is an independent entity. So that's one hurdle. The second hurdle is the obvious uh, reality that the brain is a difficult research tissue. Uh, with other tissue, we can usually take a little slice uh, or we can insert things into it that measure uh, the physiologic functioning either at the macro level or the micro level. Even the, the slightest invasive uh, technique in the brain raises some serious ethical problems. And so it, this is not a tissue that uh, is readily available for research. Animal studies with brain tissue are, by and large, uh, fairly frustrating uh, because there is such a uh, an enormous difference between animal physiology and human physiology around the kinds of issues that we're we're dealing with. And when I was talking about ethical considerations, people might have thought I meant the uh, the ethics of zapping somebody with with voltage, but in fact, I'm talking about the ethics of doing experiments with, say, a placebo treatment when you know that the, the actual treatment works so well. ECT is clearly the most effective treatment for depression, and the response rates in people who have failed antidepressants are reported as somewhere between 70 and 90 percent. That is, 70 to 90 percent of people who have failed antidepressants will have a full remission of their disease with ECT. In that situation, it's pretty difficult to make a case for a placebo-controlled trial. What do you get by understanding the mechanism of action that you don't have now by knowing that it works? What we all hope for is that someday we will have a way of inducing the chemical changes that ECT induces without having to put someone through the process of this treatment. It would be great if we could have ways of giving someone a medication or uh, inducing some uh, reset of these chemical pathways in another way through it with electrical fields or magnetic fields, some really reliable way of resetting the physiology of the brain that didn't involve undergoing a Gromal seizure. And so that would be the big payoff. If we can figure out the pathophysiology of depression, then I think it opens the door to creating a better treatment than ECT. But for now, I think ECT is here to stay for the foreseeable future. It's the only treatment we have that can reliably induce a full remission of depression or bipolar disorder in the majority of patients who have it. Dr. Welsh, thanks very much. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for asking. Again, the name of the book is Shock by Kitty Dukakis and Larry Ty. That's T-Y-E. And for more on electroconvulsive therapy, check out ect.org. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. 
Story one, Boy Scouts can now earn a merit badge in respecting copyrights. Story two, two main TV stations will no longer air any news stories about global warming. Story three, Kentucky Fried Chicken is switching to trans-fat-free oil by April. And story four, a new computer game lets high school students try to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We'll be back with the answer, but first, Scientific American editor Christine Suarez attended an unusual stem cell research symposium last week in New York City. I was in Vermont attending the annual meeting of the Society of Environmental Journalists, more on that next week, and called Christine at her office in Manhattan. Hi, Christine. How are you? I'm good, Steve. How are you? Good. Tell me about the conference you were at last week. It was held at Rockefeller University, and it was called a Translational Stem Cell Research Conference, which means a discussion of how to get stem cell research from petri dishes and, and mice to, uh, to real human treatments for patients. One of the interesting things about the conference is the organizers of the conference. Yes, it's called the New York Stem Cell Foundation, and it was founded just in the summer of 2005 by two women, Susan Solomon and Mary Elizabeth Bunzel, who are mothers of children with type 1 diabetes. And uh, they set out to find out what they could do to accelerate the development of stem cell research into treatments. You mentioned in your blog about this that one of the most encouraging things about this conference was that it was happening at all. Well, yes, it's, it's a little bit unusual to have uh, senior researchers in a very basic research field presenting their work to doctors to try to explain to them where it stands, why they're pursuing the questions they're pursuing, what they're learning, and how soon uh, and what it'll take to translate these promising results in the laboratory into treatments that are ready to be tried on people. And uh, in particular, in the stem cell field, it's a little, uh, they're a little bit isolated uh, by the lack of normal NIH funding and, and uh, organization. And so what was impressive about this organization and this meeting is that it's an example of the networks that this small foundation is creating between scientists, between scientists and doctors and uh, students uh, to just foster communication and uh they have provided several opportunities for scientists to get together and brainstorm, think of collaborations. They've also built a laboratory where those collaborations can actually take place. Uh, they've gone beyond the traditional role of uh, raising and providing funding and letting scientists just figure out what to do with it themselves. They're really uh, creating networks and uh, fostering uh, progress. You mentioned in the blog that one of the uh, one of the fears in the whole area of stem cell research is not the one that's often talked about, uh, or in addition to the one that's often talked about, where you get a brain drain, where people leave the U.S. because of the restrictions on on the research and go to places like Singapore where you can do the research. But what what a lot of these folks are really afraid of is that people are just going to leave the field entirely. Exactly, especially younger people who look around and see the political and financial difficulties that stem cell research is under and decide to maybe pursue a, uh, a politically easier line of work. Politically easier because this is like a career dead end for, uh, or it can look that way for some people. 
It can, it can. I mean, there there is some funding. There's quite a bit of impressive private money flowing into this research, but it's still not enough. I, I think as we talked about a little bit in a stem cell supplement we published last year, the venture capital world, the financial world, is hanging back, you know, because this is a field that has not been able to yet translate uh, its basic promising research into many clinical trials and treatments, and uh, they want to wait for that sort of proof. And so uh, the, the stem cell field is a little bit isolated uh, unnaturally, uh, and NIH plays a role that is beyond writing checks. Uh, it's an organiz organizing principle. It uh, fosters consortia just by giving grants for a single project to multiple groups. It organizes meetings. It sets standards. And all of that is missing in the stem cell field. So they're a little bit out on their own. And anything that brings them together in this way is uh, helpful, I think. Well, Christine, thanks very much. My pleasure, Steve. For more, check out Christine's blog entry at blog.siam.com called Found in Translation. The entry includes links to the New York Stem Cell Foundation. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, merit badge for copyright respecting. Story two, two TV stations to ignore any global warming news. Story three, KFC chicken to be trans fat free. And story four, computer game for solving Mideast crisis. Time's up. Story one is true. The Boy Scouts have a respect copyrights activity patch thanks to the Motion Picture Association of America. Make sure you don't make illegal copies of the patch, kids. Story two is true. Two main TV stations under the same general manager will only do global warming stories when, quote, Bar Harbor is underwater, end quote. That's according to an article in the New York Times. The GM also likened global warming to the Y2K scare when nothing happened perhaps because people took care of that problem in advance. Story three is true. Kentucky Fried Chicken is getting rid of oil with trans fats. We'll see if wings are still extra crispy with linolenic soybean oil. All of which means that story four about a computer game allowing kids to solve the Israeli-Palestinian crisis is totally bogus. Not because there's no solution to the crisis, because the new game only allows students to act as virtual journalists moving throughout the region interviewing characters, after which they write articles graded by the computer. Now that's entertainment. For more, see the October 30th news article on the Scientific American website called Computer Game Takes Journalists' View of Mideast. Some notes, we've been following the picks of baseball mathematician Bruce Bouquet throughout the playoffs. He gave the statistical odds to the Mets over the Cardinals for the NL title, and then to the Tigers over the Cards in the World Series, which means his odds-on favorites went only one for seven in the postseason. The math was right, the players got it wrong. You can write to us at podcast.siam.com. Check out Science Video News, now available on our website, www.siam.com, and sample the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.